big rolling here. Uh, I have, I have some announcements. I'm looking at my notes here. I'm on a page of announcements. So, when you came into our program, connection cards in there, we'd love to have your updated info. If you, if you don't have it, if you haven't been on uh, our database system in a while, um, we're going to be utilizing that a little bit more in the coming months, so definitely check out uh, what, what email you have in there. We want you to be in the loop. Also, we have an app. If you don't already have you can download the Restore Church app on your iPhone or Android device. Sermons are on there, connection cards on there, so you can fill out, uh, fill out the connection card electronically. And you can also give on there. We just humbly ask that if you believe in what Restore is doing and this community that you would financially support it. And a few, uh, some events coming up that we have going on right now. We have a Bible study that takes place Tuesday nights at the living room. Uh, it's going through the book of Zach Simon. He met through the book of books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And that's from 7.30 to 9. So if that strikes forward, we're going to check that out. You can write that on the connection cards. Zach will be in touch. Women's retreat. Deadline's coming soon. I've only seen it. We, we have a few more registrations coming this week. The deadline is March 19th. That's April 5th through 7th. The cost is $150. It's taking place with Parker's Ferry, which is from my here, a beautiful place. The, we have a meeting right after service today downstairs in the Kid City. Um, so immediately after we'll go down there, we'll meet for about 30 minutes for our, Greece, our next Greece trip to support our Greek ministry partners and to work with uh, Middle Eastern refugees. If that's something, if you're even like 5% interested in that, come check it out get, and, and hear all the info for that trip. Uh, it's going to be August 8th through the 15th. And the meeting will be right after downstairs. Just follow up. If you can't find them, just look for me because I'm going to be leaving that meeting. meeting on today. Huh? Yep. What's that say? It says they're meeting on today. On today. Yep, that's how we roll right here. Grammar rules don't apply to us. We're going to break paradigm. All right. Last announcement. April 21st, we are launching Neighborhood Collectives. And we've been talking about these uh, mainly in February. We're going to kind of talk, continue to talk about these through the month of March. So these gatherings will take, take place twice a month with different groups of people hosting. They're going to be seasonal gatherings based on lively discussion, uh, a great meal, and prayer will take place also. We want these gatherings to be a place where you get to experience church in the way of the Greek word is oikos, which is um, a really uh, technical family when we're, talk, when we're talking about church. We've seen this happen in our church, and we want to see those connections continue to grow as an extension of the love of Jesus to others. So we want these neighborhood collectives to be open doors to your neighbors, whether that's geographic or relational. This is how this is an opportunity for them to encounter the love of Christ, just a shared meal, shared discussion, and, and prayer together. So. Uh, we're asking different. We're, we're asking you to consider hosting and teaming up with two or three other households to host those. Um, leadership is not going to be heavy. It's going to be lightweight. Content is going to be provided and supplied to you uh, as hosts. You would take turns hosting these with your other group hosts. So it's not up to you every time that you meet to host at your house. So if you're interested in hosting. Anyone you want to team up with and host it, let us know. Write that on your connection card. Email Carrie. Um, get in touch with us. That's it. That's it for announcements. Lent. Let's talk about Lent. It's a six-week season that began Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, this past Wednesday. Lent um, is a season of lament. It 
It's not only acknowledging the death of Jesus Christ, but it's embracing that emotion of darkness, of violence, of injustice that Jesus went through. It's a season on the church calendar that is designed to decenter us. It is designed to make us uncomfortable, to question, to break us down. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. But in Genesis 3, humankind sinned and chose to break out and tainted heavenly creation and order. The final consequence of this was death. No longer would humankind live in perfect harmony with God's nearness for eternity. Since humankind had made the move to separate from God, we would now experience something we weren't designed to experience, death. And that is encapsulated in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Lent grants us the opportunity to remember this curse of death, to remember what humankind goes through in Genesis 3, to also empathize with the incredible sacrifices Jesus made for us, the heaven to come to earth, his 40-day fast in the desert, which is how long Lent is, and then ultimately his sacrifice, his, his arrest, torture, and crucifixion. So Lent is a 40-day metaphorical walk with God as he approaches the cross, and it's designed to be hard. And for this season, we want to embrace the hard parts of our faith. In Restore, we're going to express that through a teaching series that asks the hard questions about God, Christ, church, our faith. Um, last week, I answered the question, if God is good, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? And we answered it from a few different angles, because truth is typically nuanced, and there's not just one way to answer to hard questions. Uh, I'm going to do my best to do that each week. Obviously, I'm speaking, so you're going to get Aaron's opinion thrown in there, but I am going to try to approach the answers to these questions from some varying perspectives. I'll do my best there. So 13 years ago, I was in this bookstore and uh, picked up... Uh, anybody remember those bookstores? I, um, I randomly picked up a book called Letter to a Christian Nation. Never heard of it, didn't know the author, just saw it on the cap. And I'm like, huh, I'm a Christian? Let's read this. And I opened it up and began the meeting. And uh, I stood and read, and with increasing fear, uh, this author was attacking my Christian faith like I had never heard or seen. It was terrifying to read what this author was writing and the questions he was asking. It freaked me out. It was the first moment in my life where I actually could have heard good, hard questions and accusations about Christianity. And I had no comeback. In my mind, I'm like, uh, uh, I got nothing to and so I, I had to put it down. Um, so, with that said, today's, uh, to introduce today's question is the author of that book, Sam Harris, who's a renowned atheist, neuroscientist. Um, he's he's cool. We're going to watch a two-minute clip of Sam Harris, and then I'll start. Where, for 
that's true. That's true. Um, and I actually, I, I used a quote or a, a video from Bill Maher not too long ago. He's got a love to ask simple, ignorant questions and refuse to listen to scholarly answers. Right. We gotta go deep. Uh, Greg Boyd also wrote, it's always easier to prove a false theory false than it is to prove a true one true. So it's reasonable to have more beliefs about what you think is false than about what you think is true. It's a sign of a healthy, critical mind. If I imagine someone who is certain about everything, I'm immediately skeptical. Alright? But you, I just don't believe you. Like that's why it's like that Mark Burgundy thing, like, I don't believe you. When someone does that. I kind of want to leave those quotes there for a few minutes. We, we're not going to, because I think they make very wise points that I don't think a lot of people consider when it comes to asking questions and to listening and to searching and studying. And fourth, Greg Boyd wrote, we were created with the ability to choose love and thus with the potential to choose its opposite, evil. To assume that God is responsible for our evil, even the evil committed, quote, in his name, is, I suspect, to assume that humans are robots who simply act out a divine pre-planned program. But if that were the case, we could never be loving beings. I want to argue that ultimately all evil in the world comes from free wills other than God. What God wills and does is always good. Whatever is not good has its origin from someone or something other than God. So that's kind of an answer. Um, or kind of a prequel to our answer. So let's we now launch that and dive into this question. Why has Christianity done so much harm? The answer is nuance. And I don't know all the answers. And the ones that I think I know, I'm not even gonna like we're not even gonna have time to say all of them today. Uh, but we're gonna talk about two. I'm going to talk about one for like 19 minutes, and then I'm going to talk about number two for like 30 seconds, if that's cool, okay? Uh, number one is a little bit heavier, uh, a little bit, kind of a little bit more deep dive. So, there's a subtle and mysterious trend in Scripture, that of Jesus telling people, don't do anyone. He does this a lot for some reason. It's strange, and we see it in multiple different New Testament gospel accounts. So he heals a blind man in Matthew chapter 9. And in verses 30 and 31, he says, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. And then he heals a man with leprosy in Mark chapter 1. And in verses 43 and 44, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. Then he raises the girl from the dead in Mark chapter 5, verse 43. He gave strict, strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Then he heals the deaf and mute man in Mark chapter 7. And in verse 36, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. Why does he keep doing this? What's the deal? Here's the short version. All right, theologian Professor Scott and I said, We don't know Jesus completely until we see him on the cross. That's why he's doing that. He's saying, you don't, you don't know enough yet. You don't know enough yet. You don't know enough. Wait, 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 wait. And then he's on the cross. That's when we know Jesus to the fullest extent. The cross is also nuance. All right? It's so much deeper than the token Christian explanation, he died for my sins. He did. But there's a lot more to it than that. And typically, for some reason, people stop at that as, the, as what the cross represents and the power of the cross. One of the great, seemingly forgotten aspects of Christ on the cross, powerlessness. The powerlessness of the Lamb of God is one of the most important aspects of our faith. 
It's a critical linchpin of our faith and of God's love being released into the world and into our lives. So powerlessness is critical to Christianity. Another reason that we know this, some more evidence that we know this, is because Satan went after it pretty quickly. So if you remember, like, in Genesis 3, when Satan went after humanity, he gave humanity a craving for power. That's how he tricked them. That was the first tool he pulled out of his tool belt, was the desire to change their own circumstances. Power is what he's going to use to mess things up. So in order to understand how critical this is to our faith, and I answer this question, why is Christianity done so much harm? We need to get historical, not too historical. We won't go too deep. Um, but we need to hit some important moments and highlights in church history that reveals the truth of why Christianity has done so much harm. So the church started in the first century amidst, amidst occupation, all right? Jewish Christians were not only under the oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire politically um, and culturally, they were also oppressed by the dominant religion at that time, Judaism. So they were getting, they were getting pressure and they are in the, in the hands of the Romans and the Jews who are putting pressure on them or persecuting them politically, culturally, religiously. Also, their leader was gone. All right, he left. And he left. He didn't exactly leave the cream of the crop in charge. All right, so it, it, Christianity is a mess. All right, when you look back at the original church in the book of Acts, it's messy and no one can clean that up. Um, in every sense, for about 300 years or so, Christianity is a movement that's powerless, right, culturally, politically, and religiously. So, in the early 300s, something changed. An emperor came into power named Constantine, and he did something, he did two critical things. He became a Christian, and he legalized Christianity. The church was suddenly raised up as the dominant, uh, dominant entity, both culturally and politically. It became uh, it left being kind of a relationship amongst people around Jesus and became a religion that had power. So Satan pulled, he pulled the tool out, the tool out of the toolbox skin. The church had power. And in its purest form, Christianity is a relationship. Power makes Christianity an institution. So when culture gives the church power, this actually infects Christianity. Right? It becomes toxic. So rather than being a human community with Christ at the center, uh, cultural, political, military power has now been handed to the people of the church. And now, Christianity has become a cancer. And this throne of power has popped up throughout history. The Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, the Third Reich, some might even say um, the religious right today in America has power like this, or is seeking power like this. The grasping of power. And it's, after, it's actually happening on the left, too. Both political parties are, are trying to seduce the church by giving them power. History has also revealed places and periods where Christianity has been powerless. So we see in the first century, you know, right after Jesus left, another example that's recent, and, and um, you, you can Google this information, is uh, Communist China. When Mao Zedong took over, there were two million Christians in China. When the Communist regime fell and he left, and fell out of power, there were 53 million Christians in China. Christianity is designed to flourish when it's powerless. It has done great harm when it has power. It blesses when it's powerless. So not only does history prove this is one of the reasons Christianity has done so much harm, science proves this as well. I remember reading an article in the Atlantic a couple of years ago called Power Damages the Brain. 
it, it cited studies from psychologists and neuroscientists showing the more power a person has, the less empathy they have. And the longer they have this power and the more they have of it, the less and the empathy continues to decrease over time. So more power equals less empathy. On an institutional and historical scale, that does great harm to people who have power. It harms other people when they don't have empathy and care and concern for others. On an individual scale, on a more personal level, when Christians gain power, they start creating measures of control. And control is oppressive. Right? That's why God doesn't use it. It's why he gave us freedom. So Carrie and I have been on staff at churches for the last 14 years now. Um, I have seen the desire to exercise power through control play out in churches. I've participated in that many times. I've done harm. I hear a few examples that come to mind of how power and control harm people on a more micro scale, on a more personal scale. Before I get to that, though, we need a moment of levity. Um, <laughs> so, you know, like if you're married, um, marriage can be like a tag team of responsibility. Like you take out the trash, you do the dishes, you do this, you do that. Um, one of my responsibilities in this tag team of life is the bills, like paying the bills. So therefore, I get to deal with customer service agents occasionally. And Perry says I'm not allowed to use the word hate to describe things. Um, I strongly dislike talking to customer service agents. It's just not something I enjoy. And there's a token lie uh, of when I talk to people who are part of these big businesses or corporations where if I don't agree with a bill or don't agree with a service they provide them, there's a token lie I say and it always happens. Um, they say, well, that's our policy. And that's like poking a bear to me. Because for like two or four minutes, I forget that I'm a Christian. I can't stand that line. I do not like that line. Because what it is, it's a method of power, of them exercising power and control. And no one likes that. No one likes to be like pushed down. Um, so that happened to the team, and it happened the other day. Hence the reasons it's fresh on my mind. And big business practices like that have invaded the church. All right, it's a line I think I've seen churches use in order to establish power and control of someone in the church community. I've used this line on people. I've seen it used with women who want to lead. When someone men have the power and control and use it to push someone down who wants to lead. I've seen it used when someone has a different theology or viewpoint than the pastor. I've seen it used with scripture, where somehow the Bible is turned into an object used as a weapon to wield shame and control over people. Um, it should be used as a story about Jesus and pointing out he simply wants to set us free from all of that. And I mean, for, again, full disclosure, I've participated in this. I've sinned, I've harmed, I've repented, and will continue to do so. Because here's the thing. Power is quite a drug. Right, once you taste it, you want more of it. And the more you, you crave it, the more you try to grasp for it, the more harm you as a Christian will do to other people. Um, we've all tasted probably the power of some sort of privilege. Right? Maybe it's been our education. Maybe it's the fact that most of us, if not all of us, live above the poverty line. Maybe we have the right skin color. Maybe we have the most acceptable form of sexuality or gender. 
we've all tasted privilege in some way, shape, or form, and it's hard to cling to it and grasp for it. But when we do, we do harm to others. Gary Lloyd said, when we're created with the ability, oh, never mind, I already used that line. Um, I think, now, power, in my opinion, I think that's the number one reason why Christianity has done so much harm throughout the centuries, and I think it's why it's still, we still see little pops of this in our culture, um, doing harm when people grasp for power. Um, I can, you can probably think of more examples, and it's good, because I don't see everything, both I'm not God. It's good that we think about these questions and investigate and unpack and dwell on the discomfort that it might cause our faith to ask these hard questions. Uh, the second reason, and this one is, uh, you know, I just talked a lot about like, physical circumstances and physical harm. There's spiritual harm that occurs too because the church has to remember um, the spiritual realm. And I mentioned this verse last week in Ephesians 6. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Christianity is not harm when we make people our enemies or adversaries. Paul reminds us our struggle is not against people. It's against, it is in the heavenly realms. Christianity does harm to people, and in this world, when we forget that, we have to believe in the unseen. There is a mystical, mysterious, otherworldly part of our faith, and it's a big deal. And we have to have faith that that exists and that we are participating in that. It is, I mean, it, it's not hyperbole to say it's a cosmic war that we are involved in. And that's not something St. Harris would laugh at that. Uh, he can laugh at that. Um, I would argue that quantum physics proves that, but I'm not a scientist. I have a degree in English and have 2.9 GPA, so I don't really know much. Um, why has Christianity done so, so much harm? Again, I was only able to summarize like two questions today, but I hope we are the people and the community that will ask this and, and investigate and dwell in the hard questions. Um, I also hope, and I want to close with prayer, um, I want us to think about the fact that and say to ourselves, I'm a Christian, therefore, I have to think about how have I harmed others? I think about this every week. Uh, I have harmed an enormous amount of people, way, way too many people. And it's, it's awful to think and wonder, okay, what kind of impact and effect has that continually had on this person's life? So it's Lent, so let God break that down in you. Right? Think about, ask God to reveal your sin in this area. Invite, um, ask Him, or, or, or basically repeat I turn away from those habits that led to that. And let's ask God to heal our wounds and the wounds that we've caused to other people. That's what I'm going to close with in prayer today. Um, that despite our mistakes, people will, are healed from those and that they will still be curious about knowing God and they won't blame Him for our sin or our mistakes. So let's pray together and then we're going to sing one more song.